Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Amos. Amos chapter 4. Amos is amongst the what we call the minor prophets, only because the, the writings are shorter than those of the major prophets, but Amos is right there towards the beginning of the, of the minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, and then Obadiah. So need a little help finding Amos. He's right there, not too far from Ezekiel and Daniel. We'll be there in just a moment. Give you a little extra time. I want to talk this morning about uh, something that will be of no shock as far as the current conditions of, of our world this morning. I want to talk about the storms of life. I, um, two years ago, I guess it was, when Hurricane Irma came through and had a lot more damage uh, than it appears that this storm, Hurricane Dorian, is going to give us. I did a lesson shortly thereafter called The Storms of Life. And so, uh, as I was putting this lesson together, I was trying to think, well, what would be a, a good name for, for this lesson and, and what I'm going to, the message that the lesson is going to convey? I said, well, The Storms of Life fits that pretty well. Uh, so I've called this Volume 2. And uh, what you'll see is the message is the same, but the content's a little different. Uh, so we'll talk about that. But as is the impetus for the last lesson, is the same for this one, is that why does God allow such things to happen? Why is there terrible disasters and suffering and, uh, and pain in this world? And so that's kind of at the, at the background of this message. But I hope through this exploration we'll, we'll, we'll see and gain a little bit more insight into God and why he does the things that he does. I want to start this way, by talking about God-caused disasters. So, does God cause disasters? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes. We've been talking about in our, in our Sunday morning Bible class, we've, we've wrapped up the, the lessons in Peter, and at the end of 2 Peter in chapter 3, uh, Peter is talking about the destruction of the world, the end of time. And he makes mention there about the flood. And, and as the mockers are coming and they're saying, well, the world has been the same since the beginning, it was, what about the flood? God does cause disasters. In Genesis chapter 6 and following, we read about the flood, the worldwide flood that, dam that, that destroyed the world. As we mentioned also the world recovered as the waters receded, but only eight souls were left from, the, from all those that inhabited the earth at that time. Only eight souls. So God does cause disasters. A little later on in Genesis chapter 19, there's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. These evil cities that were so wicked that God brought destruction down upon them. And it's made very clear to us why and how he did it. You're there in Amos chapter 4. I want to read to you a few verses here. This is uh, condemnation uh, being pronounced against Israel because they were, had turned from God. And listen to what some of the things that, that God has, has brought upon them. In Amos chapter 4 beginning verse 6, it says, But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in your places. Now, Cleanness of teeth doesn't mean dental practices or anything like that. It means there wasn't any food in your teeth because you were starving. Lack of bread in your places. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse 7, And furthermore, I withheld rain from you. 
while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city and on not another. I would send rain. One part would be rained on while the other part would, would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with a scorching wind and mildew, and a caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards and fig trees and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with their captive horses. And I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And while you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I shall, because I shall do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. You see, God causes disasters. And... From the reading there in Amos, we see very clearly why. He wanted them to return to him. He wanted them to come back. He's, he's has plagued them with these things, yet they did not return to him. So yes, God causes disasters. But let's not lose sight of the fact that there's some, there's some man-caused disasters out there too. And think about things like this, like wars and terrorist attacks. Who, who's responsible for those? Now, we might say with wars that God rises up nations, and, and he has a hand in that for sure. I'm not discounting that, but, but that's men that are, that are causing those things, right? Men that are, are carrying out these terrorist attacks, forest fires. When we're careless with campfires or flicking cigarettes out the windshield and we out the, out the window of the car, and all of a sudden there's a forest fire. That's a man-caused disaster. Mine collapses shipwrecks, plane crashes, all these things that man has a hand in. You know, studying plane crashes and shipwrecks, most of the time, most of the time it comes down to a human error that caused that. So while the world wants to <clears throat> blame God for disasters, let's not forget that, you know, as, as humans we can, we can make a mess of things ourselves. What also gets lost in this is the blessings that come from God. People are quick to blame God for disasters, but they're very slow to give him credit for the blessings that he has given to his people. Think about this. Think about the parting of the Red Sea. In Exodus chapter 14 that we read about. As the children of Israel are coming out of bondage in Egypt and they're running from the Egyptian army and, and God separates the Red Sea just so they could cross on on dry land, that's a miraculous thing. That's a blessing. And not too long after that, well, I guess about 40 years after that, guess what he does? He parts the Jordan River so that the children of Israel can cross over into the promised land. Do we ever think about that and giving God the credit for that miraculous thing that happened? We're so quick to think about the disasters and blame God. Have we thought about the marvelous Incredible things that God has done for his people. Shortly thereafter, as they, as they enter into the land, the victories in battle that God gives to his, to his children, especially there at Jericho, that, that first battle that they'll wage as they cross over into the promised land. There's something interesting about that. Remember what they were told to do, to march around the city uh, for six days, and then on the seventh day they were to march around seven times and shout and blow the trumpets. That's all them doing that, right? At the direction of God. 
There's something they had to do. But what happened when they blew the trumpets and shouted? The walls fell down. That's God's part in it. That's the miraculous part. Was, is, do we think about that? Is God giving credit for that? And they were able to defeat Jericho. One other blessing that, that sometimes escapes our, our thinking in, in all of this. And I, I don't mean that to say that we, we never lose sight of this. But in this context, do we ever think about the resurrection of Jesus? Do we ever think about the blessings that we have because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? Think about the spiritual blessings that we have. We have the opportunity for our sins to be forgiven and to be forgotten, to be taken away. And all that was because of the actions of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Do we give him the credit for that? Do we think what a blessing that is? That we have that as Christians, that we can walk in newness of life. That we can truly be blessed in this life. Back to God causing disasters. Does God cause all disasters? Well, it's difficult to answer that, isn't it? I'll start by saying this. No, not all. Does God cause all disasters? I'd say no, not all. Some are just a consequence of natural processes. Hurricane Dorian. We're in hurricane season for this hemisphere, for this part of the world in which we live in. This is a time in which hurricanes can happen. They can crop up off, all the way off the coast of Africa and make their way all the way over into the Caribbean and up to, up into the Gulf of Mexico. They can start over in, off of Mexico and make their way across. These are natural processes. Yes, God has set them in motion. God's, this is God's world in which we live, and all these things are, are um, of his world. But some of these are just natural processes that take place, and earthquakes and, and fires that aren't man-made, and and floods and all those things are just a, a part of this world in which we live. Some of the things are a matter of circumstance. As we talked about with those man-made disasters, some things are just a matter of circumstance. And, and I say this, and, and Solomon points this out in, in his writings in Ecclesiastes in chapter 9, verse 11. We probably know this verse, don't we? I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not always to the swift or the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happen to them all. I love Solomon's writings. I love Ecclesiastes especially. And here's a man that's trying to make sense of all this. We're not the only ones that have done this. It's been going on for a long time. Why are these things happening? Why do these things happen? And Solomon set his mind to understand these things and so we have his writings and his stream of thought. He, he, he winds up with one of these conclusions. Time and chance happen to them all. Sometimes it's just a matter of circumstance that these things happen. Here's the thrust of this particular point. Unless he tells us, we just don't know. There are some things that, a lot of things whole lot of things that we know about God. And we know about those disasters that he's caused, that he, he told us about in his word. Those that we, he hasn't told us about, we just don't know. It could be a factor of all these things that we've talked about. 
But unless he tells us, we don't know. I want to turn our attention here as we consider why to consider Job. Go with me to Job. We know the story of Job pretty well. Here's a man, uh, a righteous man, and, and, and Satan comes and asks God about being able to tempt him. And, and so there's a, God allows Job to be tried in this way, and he's, he's stricken with these boils, and he's in terrible physical shape, and he's uh, destitute. And he has uh, some friends that come to him, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, these these friends that come to him and try to counsel him. And in, and in the end, it's pretty poor counsel that they give him. It's really not very good. They try to blame him for, for things that he has done and, and that this is because of his unrighteousness. and, and all this. His, It's your fault, Job, that you're, that you're going through all this. God's going to wind up rebuking these three. If you look there, you're in Job. Look in chapter 38 and verse 2. So... We have uh, the conversations that go back and forth between Job and his three friends. And at the very end of, of all this, um, there's, uh, God's going to step in and speak. In chapter 38 and verse 2, he says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? I just love how God speaks. I love all these questions that he goes through and asks Job, where were you when this happened? Where were you when this happened? And, and asserts his authority by asking these rhetorical questions of, that are, of course, only God could do these things. But I just love the tone in which God speaks to him. And he starts off by, by uh, rebuking these three and saying, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? See, these three were counseling Job, but weren't really speaking from, from any real knowledge. And if you go over a couple of chapters over in chapter 42, there's some back and forth between God and Job. In chapter 42, verse 7, here's the rebuke of these three again, uh, specifically. It says, And it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Tenemite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. You have not spoken about me the things that are right. So the thing, they, weren't, they weren't speaking uh, knowledge. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? They weren't speaking to Job from a, from a standpoint of knowing and understanding and, and appreciating God and delivering wisdom from God. But there's another man that's involved in this a man by the name of Elihu. Go back to chapter 33. After these three men have spoken, Elihu speaks. And Elihu is a young man, younger than these three at least, and he, he makes mention of that. He says I, in, in chapter 32, I have kept quiet because I'm younger, you're older, you're supposed to have the wisdom uh, of your age to speak these things, but I can't keep silent any longer. I've got to say some things. And in chapter 33, he says this, beginning in verse 1. It says, However now, Job, please hear my speech and listen to all my words. Behold now, I open my mouth, my tongue in my mouth speaks. My words are from the uprightness of my heart, 
and my lips speak knowledge sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Array yourself before me. Take your stand. Behold, I belong to God like you. I, too, have been formed out of the clay. Now, let's understand a couple of things here. You'll see there's quotation marks in this. This is the quoted words of this man, Elihu. Is this the holy inspired word of God? I, I don't know. I've arrived at the exact answer to that question. And the reason I say that is because some might say, well, this is obviously the word of God. So everything that Elihu is saying is true. Well, this is quoted from what Elihu is saying. Eliphaz and Zophar, those guys were quoted too. Was that the word of God? No, because they were, they were giving some pretty bad counsel to Job. But what we can say about Elihu is what he says there in verse 3, My words are from my uprightness of my heart, and my lips speak knowledge sincerely. So he's coming from a place of knowledge, uh, from righteousness, and he's speaking from that standpoint. Can we say that every word that he says is the word of God? I'm not sure that I can make that leap, and I think you understand what I'm saying. This is just being quoted from Elihu's counsel to Job, but there's some things in here that we can see that, that line up with God and the, and the character of God. But I just wanted to mention that from the outset. Look over in chapter 36. We read this as part of our uh, scripture reading this morning. Go back to chapter uh, 36, verse 24. This is Elihu continuing to speak to Job, and his message to Job is, is, is rebuking those who have, these other three that have, have given poor counsel, and he's also rebuking Job for, for putting himself in a position that he really shouldn't. Job has remained faithful throughout all this, but there is some room for some criticism for him, and that's what Elihu does. In verse 24, he says, Remember that you should exalt his works, of which men have sung. All men seen it, men behold from afar. Behold, God is exalted, and we do not know him. The number of his years is unsearchable. And here's the part where we get to what I want to talk about uh, in, in connection with our lesson. We got some background information. Elihu kind of answers some of these questions that we pose to ourselves. Why does God do th things that he does? Why is it that, that God, or how is it that we can know things like the rain and the lightning and the thunder? So Job kind of asks those questions too. Uh, sorry, Elihu. Verse 27, For he draws up the drops of water, they distill rain from the midst, which the clouds pour down, they drip um, um, upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? We know that it clouds up and rains, but how, how does that happen? Why? Why here, not over there? Verse 30, Behold, he spreads his lightning about him and covers the depths of the sea. For by these he judges peoples and gives food in abundance. That gives us a little insight into something there, doesn't it? By these he judges peoples. Verse 32, he covers his hand with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its noise declares his presence, the cattle also concerning what is coming up. So here again is a man, you know, how can we understand this about God? How can we understand why it, the lightning happens over here and, and it rains over here? And he says there in verse 31, for by these he judges his people. 
Now that lines up with what we read over there in Amos, right? How he withheld food from some, some he, times he withheld rain, and it, he was doing that to try to bring his people back to him. So Elihu is correct in understanding the nature of God in this. With this in mind, let's, let's keep reading. Chapter 37, beginning verse 1. Elihu continuing to speak. He says, At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it loose and is lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which he, we cannot comprehend. For to snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to a downpour in the rain, be strong. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. Then the beast goes into the lair and remains in its den. Out of the south comes the storm, and out of the north the cold. When the breath of God, ice is made, and the expanse of waters is frozen. And with moisture he loads thick clouds. He disperses the clouds of his lightning. And it changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may, go, that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. Notice verse 13. Whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. Now, to me, that verse is important because, again, remember that we're talking about a man here that's being quoted. But he says this about God, whether it's for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. Now, doesn't that sum up what we've been talking about? For correction, he was trying to lead his children, his children the children of Israel, back to him before it was too late. And he was causing famine and drought and all these other things, wars. Or if it's of his world. We talked about how some of these things are just a matter of, of his world that he's created. Weather. You know, these tropical storms. They, I was listening the other day and they talk about how these hurricanes uh, disperse heat out of the tropics. You know, they, they gather up and it takes heat to drive these things and it releases that out of the, out of the atmosphere and dissipates the heat and and, you know, it brings rain to lots of areas as well. Um, or of his loving kindness. And we talked about how in that passage in Amos, how it was drought, a drought over here, but it was raining over here. Jesus talks about how the Lord causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. Sometimes we need to think of it as loving kindness that God causes things to happen. But to me, that, that helps me to understand this. For correction, or for his world, or for love and kindness, he causes it to happen. Some wise words there from Elihu. I want to move into some practical whys as we start to wrap up here. Practical whys. Why does God cause things to happen? There's some practical things that we can think about. Some things that we can, we can touch a little bit easier. One, it reminds us of how beautiful heaven must be. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 14, the Hebrew writer says, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. You know, 
this is a beautiful world that God has given us, isn't it? Think, think about where we live in this world. It's beautiful. Does it compare at all to life eternally in heaven? You can't hold a candle to it. So things like this help us to, to, to remind us how beautiful heaven must be. It helps to uh, shape and mold us when we go through these storms of life. James there in chapter 1, beginning verse 2, Consider it all joy, brethren, when you, encary, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the tests of your faith produces endurance. You ever thought about it in that way? That the things that we suffer through, the storms of life, are, are there to, to, to help our character, to produce endurance? In verse 4, let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If we never encountered any kind of trials in our life, we'd be ill-prepared when one did happen. James says to count that all joy, and knowing that that produces endurance. So these trials, these storms in our life help to shape and to mold us, and they remind us of our mortality. They remind us that our time in this world is limited. It's finite. It'll be over before we know it. In James chapter 4, and verse 14 he says it this way, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Isn't that true? We don't know what our life's going to be like tomorrow. We, we can plan and we have a pretty good idea. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You know, a hundred years from now, they're not going to, this world's not going to know me. I'm just here for a short time and then just vanish away. So these, these kinds of things remind us of our mortality. Help us put things in perspective. So I want to leave you with this last thought over here about, as Christians, what do we do in these, in these times of disaster, these trying times? What is it that we can do as Christians? And I want to say this as simply as I can, that what we need to do is the same thing that we do in times of tranquility. And that is that we need to do good to all. Galatians 6 and verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are the household of faith. Now, I could have spent more time on this section, but this time is getting short. I wanted to, to break it down as simply as, as I could. And that verse there is pretty simple. While we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are a household of faith. Opportunity. <laughs> Do we think about the storms of life as opportunity? Sometimes it's hard to get our thinking that far out, isn't it? We usually think we're going to crisis mode, whatever that might be, preparing ourselves, our houses, maybe our neighbors. But that's where it comes into that opportunity. While we have opportunity, this is an opportunity for us to shine as Christians, to offer up our home for those who might be fleeing from the storm, to offer up... Um, goods and, and benevolence going out that we, we might do as individuals to, to certain other ones that we might know or, or however we might go about doing that. We have that opportunity. Storms like this present that. It's a, it's a chance for us as Christians to let our light so shine before men. So do we think about it in those, in those terms? Paul makes it clear that we've got to give priority to other Christians. 
while we have opportunity to let us do good, especially to those who are the household of faith. Look over in Acts chapter 11. It's a good example of, of this. In Acts chapter 11, they're, they're at Antioch and they hear about a uh, famine that's going to happen in, um, in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 11, beginning verse 27. It says, Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agapus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So here we have individuals who have heard about the famine and want to, to, to make a difference, want to be able to contribute, gave of their own means. Look there closely at verse 29. And the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution. So we have individuals here who are deciding to send money to those who are in need, to Christians. And they do that by way of Barnabas and Saul, and they sent that to the elders in Jerusalem. So that's the priority that we have. We have a priority to those who are the household of faith, but we have a, pri- we have a responsibility to all. We think about the, the Good Samaritan. You know, who is my neighbor? That was the whole, the whole point of that parable that Jesus told. And it's the one that, that showed mercy to this one that had been left by the roadside, beaten and robbed. He was neighborly to him and, and put him in a hotel and, and paid for his room and board and so that he could be taken care of. That's an opportunity. And we have that responsibility as Christians to do good to all, especially those who are the household of faith. I'll leave you with this quote again from Job 37. As Elihu is speaking here, Whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. We can know a lot about God and we do know a lot about God. We don't know everything. But we know, and I hope this lesson has enlightened us a little bit, at least we can help to get our arms around God a little bit better. And understanding that he causes things to happen to chastise his people. He causes things to happen just because of circumstance of this world, the world in which he is set in motion. And sometimes he does things out of loving kindness. And I come back to that idea that, we, that gets lost in this sometimes. He raised Jesus from the dead, the ultimate act of kindness, to give us a chance of newness of life, to give us a chance to put to death that old man of sin and and to come up out of the baptismal waters a new creature, to walk in newness of life. What a blessing that is. We're in the kingdom. We're living in it. But there's coming a time when this world and the, and the, and the, the realm in which we live is going to be gone. And as we've been talking about in our class on Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 11, knowing these things, knowing that the world is going to be burned up, what kind of people ought you to be in life and godliness? So we have a storm that's 
out at sea and, and threatening our coastline. Let's not lose sight of these things that we've talked about today. God is a loving God, and he's given us the ultimate in sending his son to die for our sins. And that this world is temporary. And these things remind us how temporary this world is. But there's opportunity. There's chance. There's time for us to show what it means to be a Christian and to, to build our endurance, to help our neighbors, and to be reminded that there's a more beautiful, better, everlasting world waiting ahead of us if we are faithful to our God till the end. If you're not a child of God, I would encourage you to make the necessary changes in your life to become a child of God, to be a citizen of the kingdom. And if as, if as a, a, a citizen, as a child of God, you're, you're not living up to your responsibilities as a citizen, make that right. Do what you need to do so that your light can so shine before men. Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.